In this episode, author Mary Pallon joins me to talk about her amazing book, The Monopolist, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game. It is one of my favorite books about board game history. Mary spent five years doing research on the history of Monopoly and its actual origins. She met a lot of great people and produced a great book. It is simply amazing, and you should find it, read it, and enjoy it like I have. We talked about the usual stuff, as well as her receiving her original Nintendo system for Christmas, our shortcomings at playing chess, and her love for Bananagrams. A quick note before we get into this episode, I did not know my microphone was recording awkwardly. I apologize for my sound, but don't worry though, Mary still sounds great, it was just my mic. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Board Game. I'm your host, Adam Collins. And joining me today is author Mary Pallon, who wrote the book The Monopolist, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game. Mary, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, man. So your book is one of my favorites to read. Um, I don't know why. I was just telling you before we started recording that I've read it two times. I thought when I contacted you that I had quote-unquote weeks before you were going to be available so i tried to read it a third time and you came back and said hey how's four days from now work and i have not gotten through it the third time but uh i do i do really enjoy the book there's so much good information and history behind monopoly that a lot of people just don't know well, thank you. There's no better testament than a people actually reading. I'm a big believer in getting people to read anything as much as possible. But to say someone's read your book that's not a blood relative um, <laughs> or or a student in and in it's required reading is really meaningful, let alone two or three times. So that's oh, that, yeah. that means a lot. No, I I love it, and I think what drew me to it was I read something about like the I guess the best word sorted sorted past of monopoly. And as I dug into it, your book came up, and I'm like, well, I mean, I'll give that a read. So what drew you to the story of uh, Lizzie McGee? Sure. So the whole book was an accident. Um, I, in 2009, was working at the Wall Street Journal, and I was covering business in Wall Street and trading floors. And as I'm sure you remember, in 2009, that was quite a nutty year to be doing that. Um, I kind of had stumbled into business reporting, but I've always been fascinated by money, I think money and business is actually a psychology beat in a lot of ways. It's about how we behave, how we think. And um, I was I was just riveted by, I felt like working at the journal, I had this front row seat to a pivotal moment in capitalism. Like it's very unusual to be like, I am in a moment in history and this is crazy. And I was going to mention in passing in an article, a lot of people, including you know Ben Bernanke, of course, were making comparisons to the Great Depression. So there was a lot of journalists and authors and policymakers were looking back to the 1930s and, you know, what what decisions were made, what worked, what didn't work, etc. And I was going to mention in passing blah, 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 monopoly that was invented during the Great Depression, because I played my family's tradition is we played every Christmas Eve. We still do. Um, and Excellent. and I grew up in Oregon. so It was rainy all the time. We had a lot of indoor recesses and a lot of indoor gaming time. And that was the version of Monopoly's history that was tucked into my family's game board. 
And so I started looking around and this was again back in 2009. I know this may shock you, but there were things on the internet that were inconsistent and that didn't feel accurate to me or that, that weren't aligned. And I felt like an idiot, to be honest with you, because here I was at the Wall Street Journal writing about derivatives and mortgage-backed securities and these like complex financial instruments. And the sentence about the board game, I couldn't nail down. And it was so embarrassing because if you work at the journal, and I say this lovingly, I really love my colleagues there. It's like working with like a bunch of super genius, you know, like really, really smart people. So if you can't figure out the thing about the board game, then you just feel like an idiot. Everyone was really nice, though. But um, and I... I, I just and I was like, it's so weird. I'm calling people and they're they're weird about this. Like this should be this thing that people should be excited to talk about. And of course, like, you know, your journal like my journalistic instincts are when people start getting weirded out about talking about something, I'm like, oh, I mean I'm on to something, right? Like there's a taboo and it's about monopoly of all things. Like, you know, you expect that when you report on certain things or secrets, but this wasn't one of them. And on a whim, I had reached out to Ralph Onspock. And the reason he got on my radar is I use this reporting trick that I learned from um, some of my colleagues where you call counterparties in lawsuits, Um, especially with investigative work. You're always looking for documents. And if you're suing someone or being sued by someone, you might know something about them. Um, And I had seen that Ralph, you know, I found his website, which hadn't been updated in a long time. Um, and I had seen that he'd been involved in litigation with Parker Brothers back in the 70s. And I was like, I don't know what this guy's deal is. I don't know if he's still involved in the company or whatever. So I just reached out on a whim and I said, hey, I know this sounds crazy. I'm a reporter at the Journal. I'm just trying to find out the truth about Monopoly. And God love him. He immediately got back to me and was like, oh, I waited 40 years for someone to ask me about this. It's all a lie. It was invented by a woman. And I went to the Supreme Court to fight this. And that hatched open what ultimately became an article for the Journal and then um, the book proposal and then the book. So I owe my knowledge of Lizzie McGee and the entire history of Monopoly to Ralph. And there's no way that we would be sitting here talking about it if not for him and his detective work. Yeah, Ralph Onspach, the uh, founder or creator of Anti-Monopoly, who then got sued and then he sued back and fought for his rights to produce a game called Anti-Monopoly. Yes. And that was quite, quite a litigation. Uh, I have his book as well. Um, oh, you're in I'm it. I a, love it. <laughs> uh, I'm so in it. It's, it's kind of a, well, it's, it's, a, it's an obsession and a, and a passion, I guess. Um, but yeah, and so yeah, Ralph Onspach had the Anti-Monopoly game, uh, which is on its second or third publishing or box or whatever now. But yeah, that's quite the story too. And Lizzie McGee and all of her uh, George's philosophy and the single tax and how the, the game monopoly started off as the landlord's game, which was to show how bad capitalism is. And then you think about the game monopoly and how it's about being the best capitalist there is. Absolutely. I mean, the irony is amazing to me. And for you know the five years I was working on the book, to be honest with you, I just felt like a nut job. I felt like I was like this monopoly conspiracy theorist because you'd go to any cocktail party and people would just be like, Oh, Monopoly, the game invented by the Great Depression. I was like, no, there's more to it. And then we work on something that long. It also just becomes kind of sad. Like people are like, oh, you look a little pale. Have you been out? Like, why are you obsessing about this game? And so now that the book is out there and people know who she is and know the story and it's been kind of, it's traveled around, it's made my life a lot easier. And the fact that she got a patent for the landlord's game, um, which she received in 1904, is also incredible. This was before women could vote. Um, you know, she was a really incredible woman in her own right and had worn many hats. She was an activist. She was an impassioned follower of Henry George. 
Um, she was a big political thinker. She had written poetry and short stories. And her father, James McGee, um, had traveled with Abraham Lincoln during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And when I was setting out to do the book, I had this oh crap moment, as many you know, journalists do, where I was like, I have to write a story about a woman who's famous for being unknown. And that is a research nightmare. And unlike my work at the Journal or the Times, you can't just pick up the phone and call these people. Like she died in 1948. She didn't have any kids or direct descendants. And so the things that she did leave behind, the, the the writing I had just mentioned, newspaper articles about her that were like needle, it was like chasing and, you know, finding a needle in a haystack and her game patents, you know, patents are documents as well. And they tell us a story were so invaluable to me. And I really felt like when I, I was really stuck in this book and I, I was stuck multiple times, I thought, you know, no one else is going to tell this woman's story. You know, Ralph discovered her because a lot of his fate in court hinged on proving who she was. But I felt like I had to kind of do like her mini biography because she is the lifeblood of the game. It all starts with her and she was systematically erased from the history. So I thought it was important to know who she was as a human being and then understand, well, what forces prevented her story from being told for so long? And we're so lucky that this kind of serendipitous set of circumstances rose it from the dead, so to speak. I mean, I, one of the things I love about the story is that Ralph and Lizzie never met. They were barely alive at the same time, but they have these like parallel and kind of sometimes parallel and sometimes overlapping lines as characters. Um, and I think that's one of the coolest things about history is that, you know, not to get too like, woo, but like when people die, they don't go away. You know, the world is made up of things that people leave behind or, um, so the lineage of the game, which is, you know, over a century now connects all these different characters in a way that kind of reminds me of, like the red violin or it was it was a nightmare to structure the book because I had to figure out like how to do it. But once I got it, I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting because I think that's also how the world works. And I kind of like that idea. I like that idea that, you know, I, I think it's really sad that when Lizzie died in 1948, you know, she has this like itty bitty little obituary no one really credited her with a game. If anything, she was kind of branded as a crackpot. And then now I get emails from like teenage girls learning coding who are like, she's this amazing inspiration to me. And so I think there's something kind of cool about that. Like, like legacies can have these like longer tales to them. No, absolutely. You did a great job. Like I said, I'm on my third time through the book. Um, it's just, it's an incredible story that more people need to, to know and need to understand. But also, like, you know, people also don't like to, you know, they like, they like to crap on Monopoly. But, man, what a game. Like, you can, sit, game. There and say, you can sit there and say, say how, oh, it's a terrible game. It has lived a very long life. Absolutely. I mean, it's coming up on its, I mean, 100 years. That's why. That's why. More than. Uh, yeah. That's, well, yeah. But, but now it's why they're kicking out of new version every seems like every other week some new version of monopoly the bill which is so funny because the the new versions which are you know made through a license with hasbro usually um what i find so funny about that is it's actually bringing the game back to its folk origins you know if we were playing this game in the early 1900s pre parker brothers them buying the game in 1935 you would have localized it. You would have put your alma mater on there. You would have put, you know, Boston if you were playing in Boston. You would have put Chicago, you know, the loop if you were in Chicago. We know that people did that. And so it's funny to me that we've come full circle in a way. Um, and people expect yeah. me like, I I mean, I love games, but my the analogy I always use is to me, Monopoly is the Model T. And if we didn't have the Model T, we wouldn't have 
Tesla, right? We wouldn't have hybrids. We wouldn't have all these other cars, but I'm glad I don't drive a Model T down a California highway, you know? And I think Monopoly really changed the gaming industry and it changed it technically, it changed it commercially, changed it in a lot of ways, but is it a perfect game? No, like there's other games like, you know, that I enjoy, like, and we could go in and I get a lot of questions about the morality of it and what it teaches kids. And I think those are all really valid conversations, but I'm not like this, like... Oh, Monopoly's the best game ever. I think it's like, and I think the thing that blows me away about it as a game and as a story is it's so American. It's so oh, yeah. distinctly a product of this country um, then and now. And every part of its story to me illustrates some some flavor of that. Oh, absolutely. And that, yeah. And then even in like the, was it the 40s or 50s when they started their partnership with Waddington's in the transatlantic, you know, partnership that they created because Waddington's did all the games over there in, in England in the European area and so you know it if it were for Monopoly we wouldn't be where we are today love it or hate it I love it I have so many different copies of it I might have ordered one today because it was on sale um I mean it was the Avatar I mean come on last Airbender version might as well get it right um but if it weren't for you know Monopoly, like you said, without the Model T, we wouldn't be where we are with cars. And so you got to give Monopoly its due. But definitely the, the sordid history and all the five years of your life that it uh, <laughs> it took up. What a what a great story you got out of the end of it, though. And Thank I you. highly recommend it. Definitely read the book because you need to. So how did you get into gaming? Was it Monopoly when you were a kid? Yes. Um, we, like I said, my family played Monopoly. I have an older brother and I remember the Christmas we got Nintendo and, <laughs> and the world was never the same. And he's, this is such a big brother story and I don't think he'll be pissed if I share this, but he would do this thing because no sibling wants to share video game time, right? So he would do this thing where he would give me the second controller, but not plug it in. (laughs) And so when I was a kid, I was like, I'm awesome at Mario, you know, and then like my parents would walk in and be like, what did you do? So, um, you know, I'm obviously still a crappier player than he is. Um, But yeah, I very much came of age in, you know, the 80s and 90s era of gaming. So Nintendo, Atari, um, you know, all of those games, Pac-Man. And then in terms of board games, we had all the standards. You know, we had Monopoly and Scrabble and Clue. And then more recently, I think one of the coolest things that's happened that I couldn't have predicted is when I sold the book in 2009, everybody said to me, who cares about board games? Who cares? It's all video games, all video games. And obviously the video game industry is massive. It's a juggernaut. Um, But because of, ironically, the internet, we're having this renaissance in you know, tabletop games, RPGs, all this stuff, because now, you know, if you had a friend in high school who knew D&D, great, you could learn it. But now you can just watch online and figure out how to play. And, you know, you can join a campaign online. And so um, if you have a great idea, you don't need to sell it to a Parker Brothers, you can do a Kickstarter. I mean, look at get look at Exploding Kittens, look at Cards Against Humanity. And so I think it's really cool that now kind of the gatekeepers of game publishing have changed so much from when I was a kid so that now there's so much more out there. I mean, my mind is blown by all the things I can buy for my, you know, nieces, nephews, cousins, et cetera, um, which is so, so cool. So you mentioned Kickstarter. Do you get on there a lot? You, Not as much as backer? I used to. Yeah, I try to. Well, I try to because I think also as an author, like, and a creative, it's hard. You know, I'm an independent. I hang, you know, like, it's hard to get an idea off the ground, and I really admire the 
ambition of it. And I think, you know, there's a lot of really wonderful ideas out there. And, um, you know, who am I if I write a book about, you know, a game as a critique of capitalism to uh, not look at micro lending a little bit. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's just been awesome for the game world. Yeah, no, I've been on there a lot too much. If you ask my wife, um, <laughs> but I've run a couple of Kickstarter campaigns for some board games. Um, so yeah, I mean, it has, it's kind of a double-edged sword though. Cause it's also, it's, it's brought the bar of down, which is also a lot, a lot of bad games to creep into the market. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but it's also interesting, you know, Monopoly, one of the other things that makes Monopoly so unusual is that, as you know, a hit in the game industry is so rare. It's so, so hard. And to have something that comes back every generation or multi-generational is almost impossible. So yes, there are these games that you can kickstart and, you know, there'll be a few hundred editions circulating. That's cool. That's great, actually. Yeah. Um, but to have something like even Catan, right, which is probably the most recent, I, I think of all the tabletop games out there now, probably the one that has the best shot at being multi-generational. Um, and also from a design standpoint, I think there's a compelling argument to be made that it's much more sophisticated in what it teaches than Monopoly. But I don't know if we would have Catan without Monopoly. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, but I, yeah. I agree. That's definitely going to be the one. I mean, what people realize is that was done in uh, 95. Yeah, so, so that's a great that's point. Up it took it, it took a while to get from you know Klaus Huber's brain out into <laughs> out into the world, but thank goodness it did. No, oh, absolutely. That's what dragged me back into gaming because when I played games, like it was Monopoly. We had tons of Monopoly tournaments in college. Like we played on the dorm floor. We'd have like dorm rooms, and then if you finished first, you went to this room, and oh, second fun. went to that room. Oh, we played so much Monopoly, but you know. That was early 2000s, so that was before, you know, Catan really made it over here. And then my brother's six years younger than me, and he's the one that, he played it a lot. And then, so, you know, now now the, the badge of honor is being able to beat him at Catan, but I still haven't done it. But that's not the point. I'll get there eventually. But, uh, yeah, to see that it's still relevant, still coming out with new expansions, still coming out with new versions, and here we are, like I said, almost 30 years later is a, is a testament to that game. So if, I, yeah, so if I made the journey to L.A., what is your current favorite game? What game are you playing? Can I be honest? Yeah. So I've had a couple of like long weekends away, holidays, etc. And you know what game is um, an unsung hero and never fails is Bananagrams. And here's <laughs> what I love about Bananagrams, that... I think I love Scrabble, but I think people who don't know Scrabble get very intimidated by it. Um, it's too daunting. I think that a lot of people feel similarly about Monopoly. They've had traumatizing experiences with it. Bananagrams is like, give me five minutes and then hours pass. And I think it rewards, you know, because Scrabble, I think, is actually a math game. Math is a word game. Um, and, and if you play Scrabble against someone who's good, it is really crappy you know like it's oh, not sure. it's not fun and so i think like in my you know in the short attention span world that we're we're living in you know i i really try to grab people to do a proper game of Catan, or you know it's just hard and i think bananagrams has been the thing that i just throw it in like you know my bag or whatever and people are never not in a mood to play it and <laughs> it's fast-paced enough and stressful enough that you get some adrenaline but it's approachable easy charming so honestly 
I feel like that's what I've played the most in the last six months, which is funny because it's been on my shelf forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, the pandemic will do that to you. It'll change, <laughs> change your uh, usual, <laughs> what you're usually doing. Because, yeah, with, uh, the job I worked at when the pandemic started, we played a ton of Catan. And, I mean, like, we had a traveling Catan trophy and everything that went to whoever won. And then we'd have multiple games going, which you had to be in the championship table to take the title. It was the whole thing. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> My family probably most consistently plays Catan. Like, Catan, Catan. Is it your, like, did I, we settle... It's Catan. I was going to ask you it's one of my questions, but you said Catan, so I've already marked Catan, it down. Catan, Catan. Is that like tomato, right. tomato? I just, it is. I can it spell is. it, which in my <laughs> business is what really matters. So, yeah. um, well, I always think about that uh, that meme on Facebook that has like Godzilla and King Kong, and it's like readers, the people that can spell the name of the character, and then it has King Kong, it says the people that audiobook it can, and can pronounce it, you know? Oh, so Lord. And podcasting is where we crash. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I don't know how to say anything. Yeah, that's hilarious. So when you play a game other than Monopoly, because it doesn't have colors, but if you play a game that has colors, do you have a specific color that you like to play as? No. Often it's red. I'm the youngest sibling, so I always felt like red or brighter colors. I'm thinking of Clue specifically, actually. Um because that was like my my yeah. little my little chance at asserting myself. Um, but I'm not I'm not super rigid about it. That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, you you should write a book about Clue because that has a, that has another really weird history to that one. It does indeed. Yeah, that poor guy took a, a lump sum payout and oops. <laughs> has a lot of parallels. I don't know if yeah. I, there's a book in it, but there's a good solid. 150 pages. Good luck. It's, it's a little novella, you know? Side, side hustle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that's another interesting game uh, back in the day. And that one originated in uh, Europe and it was part of the one of the swap deals they did with Waddington. So. And it's way more violent than people remember. Like there was a, I think there was arsenic and a bomb in the original. I feel like this is in my book. Um, yeah. And okay. and I think that's I always and the game of life family. is way more dark and violent. So again, going back to games, yes, um, the, yeah. the Milton Bradley one. Going back to games as cultural artifacts, and I think this has changed since the book came out. But you know, I remember I used to hear. I love comics and I love cartoons, like these horror stories of like you know Schuster cart cartoons that would be shoved into like stop leaky pipes and stuff. You're just like no, you know, or like original Crazy Cats or whatever, like. You're like, these are art. They need to be preserved. They're really important. And I feel like games now, and I credit the Strong Museum and a lot of great institutions, uh, and we use Game Center as well, for like finally being like, these are collectible, these matter, and they're reflections of their times, just like books or film or any other media would be. Um, and yeah, so I think those early games of Clue, and especially when you think about what was it to be in the UK in the 1940s, like that's fascinating to me, at least. Yeah. You don't need to be... a have a PhD in history to be like, wow, like this is the game yeah. that was coming out as the bombs were, you know, being dropped or anyway. Exactly. That's when they came up with it. And, then, you know, it was all about a murder and they were like really afraid to release a game about a murder. Like, well, the murder's already happened. You're just trying right. to figure out right. how it happened. And now we've themed it with Golden Girls trying to figure out who ate the last piece of cheesecake. So, well, but interestingly, <laughs> like you're onto something really interesting. So I did a story 
in the spring of 2020 when we thought the pandemic was coming to a close, you know, and <laughs> it was about how Trump's grandfather had died in the flu pandemic. And, and you know, the, the one we had a century ago. And one of the bizarre things that you learn when you study that pandemic is that nobody like if you look at music in the late teens and early 20s, there are no songs about the flu pandemic. There's no books They're like people just didn't want to talk about it. And I remember at the time thinking, well, that seems like a shame because history matters, the record matters. And now, like, I don't know what period we're in, but I'm like, I don't want to do a COVID book. I don't want to watch a COVID movie at night. But like that work really matters, obviously, you know, in terms of documenting it. So I think when you think about games and the role they play and what people want out of games and you kind of overlay that with history, it is kind of an interesting like thing like, oh, will people engage like, you know, that's part of what Monopoly Monopoly's history is so interesting is people said, well, why, what are the reasons they didn't think it would sell in the 1930s is first of all, people didn't have a lot of disposable income if they had any at all. And it's about real estate and money at a time when those were precisely the things that people were really struggling with. Right. But when you go back and you're like, oh, wait, the game actually started in the progressive era and is actually about trust and excess in the Gilded Age. And I think we very much live in a Gilded Age today. Like that changes the whole prism through which you view the game and how it really spread in the in the beginning, and that it spread among people who are critiquing all that. Um, sorry, that was kind of a tangent, but yeah, <laughs> it was monopoly related. I stayed on point. Hey, there you go. So you know that's what happens. You get off topic and then somehow circle back to it. You're like, hey, it's not bad. It's like a U turn kind of. So if you um, do you play games at lunch or do you have coworkers? Do you work from home? I work from home with my dog. Um, I have a co-working space, but alas, we don't we don't game. And when actually when you had reached out about the whole idea, I thought of lunch lunch recess in Oregon because it rained all the time. And I remember the teacher, she would come and she would be like, you know what, it's raining. You can't go on the playground. And all the kids would groan and I would secretly be like, yes, like <laughs> awesome. It was like such a nerd win. It was like, I don't have to get beat in a dodgeball, like, or these other games. I was just absolutely terrible at that involved like physical activity. Now that I write about sports, it's like hilarious. Anybody who knew me then. But it was board game time. So that's my oh, most yeah. like vivid like lunchtime gaming experience, I think. Nice. I mean that's great. No, I I remember those times. I grew up in Indiana. We had, you know, I had to worry about snow and rain and all that as well. And people try to teach me chess, and I'm like, "Why can't this piece go there?" Well, that's not how it moves. Man, I don't get chess. And now my son is like ten and you know plays chess all the time and whoops my butt at it all the time. Um, and I'm like, "What's well, because I never freaking learned it?" You know, I was too busy trying to play checkers and try to fit a battleship game in or something. But I'm man, in the I same boat. I, I love chess, but I'm terrible at it. I need to. I thought was like a pandemic skill I thought would sharpen, and I just never, <laughs> never got around to it. And similarly, my nephew destroys me at it, which oh, I'm proud of him for. But yeah, still yeah. painful. You, you need to get on that. Uh, what's that app my son has? Something like it's something about Beat Magnus, and you're like you're, oh, you're like yeah. trying to play Magnus Carlson at various stages of his life or something, and I'm like. Mac. Can I play when he's like four? I, I don't know. I'm, I am not that great at, at chess. Um, I picked. I, I know how to play it. Uh, I've gotten really good at just kind of getting into a holding pattern and trying to not lose. That's, hey, defense will get you far. Although I will say <laughs> a category, I don't know if these qualify as games or not, but I'm definitely on the Wordle train and I do the crossword. I've always loved crosswords, but I'm far more consistent 
at it than I ever have been um, and really enjoy it. I think it really like calms me down. It gets me focused. Like it does something to my brain that I really enjoy. Yeah, if only I can remember that picture from the Yankees in the 60s. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Well, they, the, I have to plug a, a friend of mine, Adrian Raphael, wrote this wonderful book called Thinking Inside the Box. And it's all about the history of crosswords and kind of how they work and what it takes to build the puzzles and everything you'd ever want to know about crosswords. And so um, it was really fun to read that as a fan of crosswords for a really long time. So um, oh, if you want to nerd out. Too. Why not? You should see my bookshelf of board game books. It's, I've got so many of them, but uh, I, I've not read Thinking Inside the Box about crossword puzzles. So I wrote that down, put that on my list of things. Yeah, I felt like this was a safe space, so. That's a safe assumption you made there. So what about, if you did game at lunch, a go-to 60-minute game, a one-hour game? One-hour game. Hmm. Can you play Catan in an hour? Would that count? I, I can. All oh, the time. Ticket to Ride. That's mm -hmm. we haven't talked about that. I feel like that would be the perfect lunch break. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. love that game. It's so fun. There's so there's so much different every game, and yet there's definite strategies or connections we'll say that if you can get you can either help yourself or more importantly hinder your opponents yes <laughs> but think of the right great alan alan moon's uh book or a uh, game uh i've got at least ticket to ride ticket to ride europe i don't think i have any of the other oh i have the rails and sales have you ever played that one? No, oh, that sounds awesome oh my god it is the board is just huge and you have a combination of trains and boats, and you have to build routes across the globe. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you for helping me with my holiday shopping. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, I like it. It's a good one. You can't play it in an hour, but it's a good one. <laughs> but yeah, Even I think the red's great. The new ones, I like the little city editions that they've been putting out. They're like the little micro box. They take about 20 minutes to play, 15 minutes to play. They're a lot of also fun. Also smart. Yeah, yeah I feel like when you play a game to the lunch break point, I haven't really thought about this way. I think about books this way. Like when I finish a really good book, I want to feel the same way that I do after I finish a really good meal. You know, I want to feel full and satisfied. I feel like after you play a good game, it's like that same like, yes, like yeah. there's like a heartiness to to it um, that I think oh. is really, I don't know, satisfying. Well, I mean, but it's it. Yeah, I, I can I understand because like when you play Catan and you get really close to the tenth the tenth point and you've got hidden points and you're trying to calculate you know, doing it's over, you're like, Oh so close. But you feel like you've accomplished something, you've done something. Mm -hmm. And ticket to ride as you're tallying up all the points at the end, it's like who's got it? Who's got enough points to, to go over the top and win this? So I I can see that. What about a thirty minute game? A lunch half hour? Thirty minute game. Oh my goodness. You know, this is a surprising answer. Monopoly deal. Um, even I, though Hasbro yeah. won't admit a woman invented Monopoly, I have to hand it to him. I think Monopoly deal, they did a great job with. I think it's a great game. Um, yeah. That's I probably about a 30-minute game. I've never timed myself. <laughs> I don't think I've timed myself on that one either, but no, I, that's a good one. Or Bananagrams. I, Bananagrams. I was waiting when I used to say Bananagrams, but yeah. Yeah. 
But that's also like a five minute game, you know, depending. You can play multiple in 30 minutes. It's perfect. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's a good one. Which is funny that you came up with that as your current game is also like your hidden hidden gem game. Because usually I ask, what's the hidden gem game? A game you don't think gets enough credit. That's exactly how you pitched Banana Grams. Absolutely. Hidden Plain Sight gem. It's funny how many of the hidden gems that my guests, you know, come up with. And I'm like, I've seen that game. But I've never thought to buy it or play it until somebody's like, oh, yeah, this is great. And I'm like, well, probably go and find it a trend that i really love um that i was really worried about the pandemic killing but by and large i think has survived is so i until very recently lived in new york city and there's the chess district and you can go to where bobby fisher learned to play chess and you can play chess and it's amazing um and now because of you know a variety of factors there's like board game coffee shops so i wrote about the uncommons which is in the chess district actually it's in an old chess one of those old chess stores there's yep. snakes and lattes in Toronto. There's, um, I feel like there's more of these popping up. And I think that's a really cool trend because first of all, it's community, it's all ages. It's, I think it's, it's a great way for coffee shops to say sustainable is public spaces, which I think is really important. Um, but it's also a great way to try a game before you, because yep. I think that, you know, if you're going to pay however much for a game, it's great to be able to try it out first and see, you know, what you like or don't like and get exposure. So shout out to all the board game coffee shops yeah. out there. We have one uh, here in St. Louis. It's called Pieces, um, and it's right downtown, right in the uh, right by the farmers market. It's a big farmers market in Seward. Awesome. I I go there a lot, mainly <laughs> mainly to uh, uh, meet up with groups of friends and just try to get them to to see that there's more games out there than Monopoly and Clue. Well, it's also kind of hitting. So David Sachs, who's another friend and colleague, he wrote a book about the rise of analog. And it's this idea that, you know, we live in a more tech saturated world than ever. But why are people buying moleskins? Why are people playing board games? Why are people doing these? You know, I've got a typewriter here behind me that works, by the way. And, um, and I do think that there is something really wonderful about you know, a board game is it forces people to engage with each other and be together. And you have kids who understand, but like, I think it's true with adults too. And that's something that I think is really interesting too, that we now kind of crave that in a different way. And so I think having stores and spaces or like, you know, I lived by Washington square park for years, the chess guys were always there. And I thought it was the coolest thing that this was like the common glue that brought tourists and locals and Games bring us together. This is also just like sports. Um, and I think that's super cool. Yeah. And you you live right by those guys and you never... Here's my dog. There. there he is. <laughs> you, you live right by all those chess people and you never went down there and had them teach you how to beat your nephew? Oh my God, they would have destroyed... Like, it was just, you know, at a certain <laughs> point, you just have to like... So, it would have been so nice and helped I paid you out. for him to play. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll observe. I'm here for moral support. Um, but I need to I need to bone up with chess online a little bit before I really delve in. That's like saying like, oh, you never held a basketball. Why don't you go shoot some free throws with Steph Curry? It's like, no, like I got to <laughs> got to work on my skills a little bit first, you know. Now, you may not believe me, but I've actually read that book. The Which book? Of, the Return to Analog. Or oh, really? Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Another a past uh, guest was talking about it and I was like. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, another one they taught you, going back to the moleskins, the, uh, going back to vinyl records, and how they found all these old, dilapidated, 
record presses and then had to refurbish them and get them up and running to meet the demand of the vinyl these days and talk about board games versus video games um and then another one i really enjoyed was the chapter on the polaroid pictures yes it's so funny as you were taking that off i own a turntable i own a polaroid camera like maybe that's a board game <laughs> thing it seeps into all these other parts of your life hey i've got i've you got know. a uh, I've got a turntable. Mine's sitting. You can't see it. It's off camera right over there. But I've got a turntable. I buy a lot of uh, records. Usually they're James Bond soundtracks or something silly like that. Some nerd soundtrack, you know. But uh, I got, <laughs> yeah, my record player sitting over there. I don't have a Polaroid camera. Obviously, I have a few board games. Or a few hundred. I'm not sure. <laughs> but there's a lot. But yeah, it's so it's interesting you mentioned that book because I'm like I have read that book. That was a very fun book um, that I read as well. But it's been uh, it's it's an interesting time to be in, in board gaming and see all the different mechanics and all the what sticks, what doesn't, and the trends. I think we're finally through the zombie trend. I hope I can't take another, <laughs> I can't take another zombie game. <laughs> yeah god i hadn't thought of, yeah that that was really again and some and trust me in 40 50 years someone will do whatever it's not gonna be podcasting it'll be something we can't even conceive of and they'll be like well in the pandemic there was this obsession with zombie games what was that about <laughs> you know what were they working through there yeah, yeah there was a lot of zombie games yeah and a lot of them you know from the from the eyes of the zombies surviving zombie attacks i'm like oh my god yeah, there's so many zombie <laughs> games i think i own one maybe but uh yeah but it'll be interesting to see uh what the next big board game is what the next big fad is in the board gaming industry so well, Mary, I'd like to thank you for being on my show today. It's been wonderful talking with you and also to kind of geek out on Monopoly for a little bit. Anytime. Pleasure is mine. <laughs> so your book, The Monopolists, where can people pick up a copy of that? Sure. Links to all that are on my website, which is just my first and last name. It's Mary, M-A-R-Y-P-I-L-O-N uh, dot com internet what a it's not a fad i think it's gonna be here for a bit um and you can get it at any major retailer barnes and noble amazon bookshop um so yeah ebook audiobook all the books support your local bookstores though i'm a big bookshop.org fan um especially in the holidays it's good good to support yeah. those stores they're great certainly is the audiobook is great uh we were talking ahead of time how you like the narrator of it. Um, it, it is, it is well done. That's why I don't actually own a copy of your book. Is because I had the audiobook for, through the library, and it's so easy just to hit play and go. <laughs> this has—I'm a big consumer of audiobooks, but I have to tell you, and I'm not a memoirist. So having somebody else read your work when it's been in your head for a really long time is a really trippy experience. I mean, I'm, I don't know how it is for other authors, but for me, you're just like, oh my God, it just feels like Morgan Freeman's narrating your thoughts or something. Like, it's just very weird, especially because the people who do audiobooks are clearly professionally trained and have these incredible voices and stuff. And so it's just very, it's it's fun. It's really fun. So <laughs> That's not how I heard it when I was writing it. But that's now, that's all I hear. Is I, so that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
so if you want to reach out to you, hit you up on your website, maryplond.org.com. Dot org's in the works. I'm, I'll start my cult yeah. soon enough, but for now, it's just just me, <laughs> me and my dog. <laughs> a small cult. Yeah, not, not exactly. too dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and as usual, if you want to reach out to me, eatlunchandboardgame.com, podandbox.com slash eatlunchandboardgame, or email me to lunchandboardgame at gmail.com. And remember, board games build bridges. Please rate and leave a review wherever you listen. Jay Fry wrote, Great viewpoint. I really appreciate that the show looks at board gaming through the lens of what could I play over a lunch break. More and more of us are struggling to work gaming into busy schedules, and this show does a good job of spotlighting what works in a one hour or less window of opportunity. Build those bridges, folks. Thank you, Jay Fry, for the review. I'm glad that you have found this podcast useful. Leave a review and I will read yours in a future episode. When you're gaming, why not be comfy? Go over to supportplayer.org. Click on the cards, pieces, and dice to get some merch. These t-shirts are some of the most comfortable I have ever worn. That's supportplayer.org and there's a link on eatlunchandboardgame.com.